0: To the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. Duke, 2029, written and read by Michael T. Whistler. This book is dedicated to my friends, old and new, but mostly to Dean and Kurt, without without whom I might have gone insane, or more so. Thank you for your friendships and all the opportunities along the way. Also to my mother and father, For letting me wander. Things, while seeming not to be changing with any kind of speed in this part of the world, most certainly are. It's just a matter of scaling out one's perspective to see it. This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents either are the product of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, events, or locales is entirely coincidental. Introduction The Who The Who of this story is unimportant. Imagine anyone you like, although I imagine it as a version of me. I never felt like I was making any decisions throughout the following saga, I felt as though someone or something was guiding me. Perhaps you, sitting there, reading. Perhaps your psyche is what guided me. Perhaps it was someone else's. What's it matter anyways? Don't think too hard about it. You might strain something. What's it matter anyways? Possibly my all-time favorite question. Some things matter. I find that most do not. I am convinced. The things that matter, I find, are usually the simplest of things. What's for dinner? What's for breakfast? Can I get a coffee? Where's the shitter? Etc. If we were to try to nail down every single thing and whether or not it matters, we would most certainly go mad. The fact of the matter is, it most certainly depends. Some things matter one day or one minute, but not the next, even if we think they do. Now, I beg you, do not think of me as a pessimist. I am more of an optimistic apatheticist. There is certainly no certainty in what I am discussing here. All in all, I just seem to usually know what to care about in any given moment, and more importantly, what not to care about, Which, as I said, generally is most things. When I start to care, when something seems to matter, that's when I perk up my ears. That's when I slow down for a moment. That's when I look around. I couldn't care less whether or not you know what I mean. If I begin to explain, I will lose the point. If a conversation lacks interest, I will only tolerate it for so long. So how you doing? Oh, pretty good, you? Great. And how you been? I thought I just said. Let's forget these pleasantries if you don't mind. As someone who rarely cares, the level to which I care about this tale is difficult to express. I only hope that you enjoy it. Chapter 1. The Mission Welcome back to the show, a Rebels new, Rebel News broadcast, your favorite place to find out what might be happening today in the former U.S. of A. As always, we are broadcasting exclusively on our secure and private network from our pirate box to yours. It is Monday, August 1st, 2029, in case you've lost track of time. As usual, good information is hard to come by, and that's why we get ours direct from sources on the ground across the North American continent and beyond. We thank all of our citizen journalists for taking the time and risk to send us this information. As you know, most of this information is unconfirmed and should be taken with caution. False information is always possible. We'll start our news hour with the latest on military action, as well as travel and trade updates. Last Friday, Freedom Fighters from NorCal began a coordinated assault against multiple government roadblocks, attempting to clear critical routes for delivery of this summer's cannabis crop. Met with limited resistance, at least half a dozen teams were involved across three counties in the area known as the Emerald Triangle. In the free state of New Hampshire, the southern and western lines have held steady between the federal forces and the New Hampshire state militia. But talks of a potential ceasefire continue after the last few years of ongoing and sporadic armed skirmishes. As always, travel routes are unpredictable or I'm sorry, unpredictably patrolled and blocked in the areas near the border as government ID and medical records are required to travel into the Union, even on foot. Travel into these areas at your own risk. Most routes are blocked or destroyed, coming south from New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, but west-to-east routes into the Union through the Appalachians are more accessible. Check with local verified ham radio operators message boards, and travel bulletins in the area to find out the most current information. To all the messengers, smugglers, and rebel spies inside of or heading into government-controlled zones, be careful, be brave, and come back to us in one piece. Gasoline and oil supplies and prices are still unpredictable since the blackout. But producers and refineries in Texas and Alaska have promised to keep pumping and processing as much crude oil as possible. They have been selling exclusively to the autonomous zones, while California and the remaining union states continue to buy cheaper products from Russia, China, and Iraq, which despite being subsidized by slave labor, is still more expensive at the pump thanks to gas taxes. The Texas-Louisiana oil syndicate is beginning to refill the strategic reserve sites, underground salt caves in Louisiana, which are now outside of the control of federal forces since the New Orleans uprising. Once the reserves are full, the oil syndicate intends to uh, recommence export sales and offshore drilling once the Union Navy is reallocated. The syndicate says it will provide security for its Gulf Coast drilling rigs and tankers only if it is allowed to purchase refurbished Navy warships from the the bankrupt union. Weapons depots along the Ohio River were hit by a drone strike in the early morning hours of July 26th after a suspected undercover federal agent left the headquarters of the Midwestern Militia Alliance with a hard copy map detailing the locations of the hidden bunkers. An estimated 5,500 small arms and 2 million rounds of ammunition were destroyed, which had previously been commandeered from a National Guard armory. In international news, better news. Peace talks between the organization known as the Texan Alliance and the North Mexico cartel appear to be gaining ground. As trade has finally opened back up from the Mexican side after the cartel shut down all trade to Texas two years ago, excluding narcotic drugs, which continued unabated. The flow of tequila, mezcal, avocados, peppers, tomatoes, and more has, had ceased, while fentanyl, cocaine, and heroin continued to cross the border into Texas. Our top story tonight. Canadian patriots broke through military barricades at the Federal Building in Ottawa and stormed the building after two-plus years of intense bloodshed leading to the capital. The Royal Canadian... Canadian Mounted Police and Canadian Army, whose numbers were greatly reduced thanks to mass desertion and noncompliance, laid down their arms at 4.32 a.m. Thursday morning. The siege lasted a total of 79 hours, with an estimated 300 wounded on the rebel side and at least 100 fatalities. Estimates of casualties on the side of the Canadian government are less clear but our boots-on-the-ground citizen journalists report over a 1,000 total wounded or killed. The success of the siege was due, in large part, to the skill of the Canadian Rebel Army's sharpshooters, as well as a bold use of the Trojan horse strategy, charging the gate with with an armored box truck to begin the siege. According to our sources, the suicide mission delivered a dozen of the CRA's best and most daring fighters into the center of the compound, where they successfully utilized the element of surprise and took out an unknown but significant number of combatants in the early moments of the siege, opening a path for the remaining fighters. While none of the initial strike team survived, I would venture to guess that their bravery will be sung about for many generations, and their names will not soon be forgotten. Now for the food and farming segment. Farmers in the central autonomous zone note that it looks like it will be a good harvest year for wheat, rye, barley, and corn, and that feed supplies for this coming winter should be sufficient. Cattle production is nearly back to half of what pre-blackout quantities were, thanks to foregoing all USDA, FDA, and ATF regulations for the processing, packaging, uh, I'm sorry, processing and packaging in favor of a simple eat-at-your-own-risk policy. The autonomous zone is enjoying the lowest relative prices in decades for beef, dairy, pork, and poultry products, as well as tobacco, cannabis, beer, cider, and liquor. Farmers in our network from Northern California say it was a good year for cannabis production. Due to the bump in production, prices are down as supply is up. The trouble for them is moving it without paying extremely high taxes and tariffs. Meanwhile, Oklahoman hemp and cannabis producers continue to enjoy the benefits of a tax-free market in the central autonomous zone, undercutting the prices from California, Californian producers while maintaining their profit margins. Some estimates indicate that cannabis and hemp production in the former state of Oklahoma will likely surpass production in the People's Republic of Northern California in the next few years. Despite a drier-than-average year for the Continental Divide Autonomous Zone, cattle herds are reportedly doing well grazing in the mountains. The annual fall roundup will be starting in September, and according to sources, there is a shortage of skilled cowboys available to do the job. Anybody with an adventurous spirit and the willingness to tolerate extreme discomfort is encouraged to seek employment with ranchers this autumn with the promise of generous compensation in either Bitcoin or beef. In terms of international food markets, there are reports of crop failures in Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia. International farmers' networks are foretelling of a coming global rice shortage that could spell famine for a large portion of the globe. International trade in food is now at an all-time low, with many countries and communities opting not to export, but to stockpile. This, as well as the global breakdown of transportation and trade routes, combine into a bleak outlook for much of the world's food supply chain. Permaculture emissaries have volunteered to speak to leaders of at least six foreign nations and city-states to discuss what could be done To improve self sufficiency and food system resilience, arguing that there is no need for anyone to starve. There have been a few, I'm sorry, there have been a handful of newly declared independent zones in the last few weeks, pushing the line of the CAZ further east, while the western line remains stable at the Mojave Desert and along the Sierra Nevada Mountains. While the exact borders can be hard to define, here are the newly declared zones that we know of. The Free City of Pittsburgh, the Free State of Western Appalachia, the Asheville Enclave, the New North Georgia Territory, and the Gulf of Mexico Autonomous Zone, otherwise known as GOMAS. All of these areas are still technically disputed, The only territories that have been officially surrendered by the federal government remain Texas, California, and Alaska. While much of the military personnel have defected in the years since the great blackout, the Union's military is still the second largest state-run force in the world behind China's. And to wrap up this week's show, we are bringing you a letter from a freedom fighter on the front lines in New Hampshire where active fighting has been ongoing for some time now. Dear fellow freedom fighters and defenders of liberty, I choose to keep my identity to myself as I, like so many, still have family and friends who live under the boot of our former government. I have been on the front lines since this all began three and a half years ago. I, like most, have only taken occasional R&R when absolutely necessary. We are dug in well. The imperialists will not gain on us, but they do not appear to be backing down yet either. It almost seems at this point to be a symbolic battle in which the enemy refuses to lose while being incapable of winning. The territory belongs to us, the free people of New Hampshire, and shall remain that way. We thank all of you who send generous contributions of bitcoins, bullets, beans, and bandages. Every bit helps. Without giving away anything, I will say that we could use more. More equipment, food, funds, and good men. There are areas we wish to take back that have been lost for years. Key areas of strategy as well as symbolic importance. We are not content to stay hidden in these woods much longer. The enemy has shown it is not as strong as it once was, and the time will come to push them back until they can go nowhere but jump into the sea. We will not abandon our countrymen in the areas still occupied by tyrants, and we will not stop until we have ended the empire once and for all. The battle is far from over. But we have proven the strength of of free people against the war machine. And we will continue marching forward. When and where to go first are still being decided. But if you care to join us on the offensive, we could use you. Fit, armed, and at the ready. To all the folks out there reading or listening to these words, I ask you only for one thing, really, your prayers. As we all realize now, this is a spiritual battle as much as a physical one. It is a battle over the sovereignty of every individual on the planet, and it could, and it can be won, so long as we keep fighting, however and wherever we can. While good men are lost along the way, each one departs us knowing they served the best mission one can serve. that of liberty. They've each lived freed, lived free and died. Let us not forget them. Thank you and keep the faith from a sovereign warrior among many. So with that, I wish you a glorious day in the free world. May we, by the grace of God, make it free and just for all through autonomy and anarchy. Thank you for being a part of the Thought Rebellion Stay free and stay alive. The Polymath, signing out. He takes off his headphones, pushes the microphone away with a small squeak from its scissor-armed mic stand and stands up with a stretch and a moan, ending his weekly transmission. Not as young as we once were, eh? He thinks, walking stiffly towards the small refrigerator in the 20-foot-long Silver Bullet 2012 Airstream Camper. He grabs and cracks a can, drinks most of the crisp, cold beer down without stopping, and grabs another before shutting the door of the propane-powered refrigerator. He belches, steps forward to the screen door, and with a short whistle, he calls the dog from her resting place on the queen mattress in the back of the trailer. They both step through the door and onto the bare dirt of yet another anonymous campsite someplace out in the desert. He and the dog both look up seeing the bright full moon and stars coming out in the late twilight. Every time he looks at the full moon he he looks away thinking of her. This time, like every time he thinks about her he curses himself For still caring. Why can't I stop? He asks himself, but can't say exactly except that she was special, beautiful and lovely, but with a certain amount of mysteriousness and meanness to her. He fell in love fast and hard, even with the parts of her he hated. He finishes the last dredges of his first beer with a sigh, tosses it behind him into a small pile of empty cans before cracking the next. Here in the desert, the cans dry out fast, so they don't gather flies like they did back home. A small, in, a small convenience, but worth appreciating, he thinks. He thinks about how much beer he drinks, and figures it's because he's lonely, justifying his lack of self-control. Beer was always a good friend to him. Not as good as his dog, but dogs live and die, while beer is immortal. Even during the rough times, he was always able to find some beer, by some miracle, even if it was warm and had gone a little skunk. Water into wine, he thinks to himself. Jesus must have been fun. A deep thinker and a quick drinker. My kind of guy. He paces around outside the small travel trailer, sipping, sipping his beer and watching the shadow of his dog moving in the bushes sniffing for something worth hunting, a jackrabbit living somewhere in a nearby hole. Hey, he shouts, somewhat somewhat indifferently, following it with a short whistle. The dog comes from the bushes with a few spiked seeds called goat heads stuck to the end of her nose and fur. The man brushes the dog's nose, slips his hand under her chin, and lifts her head to meet his, looking in her eyes. With me, he says firmly and drops his hand. The dog complies by walking close to the man's right-hand side for the remainder of their laps around the camper. He didn't like her wandering away from him at night in this part of the world with too many things that can kill a dog. Snakes, scorpions, packs of coyotes, even the occasional mountain lion. When they come around to the front of the trailer, the man sits with his feet on the bench and ass on the old picnic table of their dilapidated campsite, taking another deep swig of his beer. He sets down the beer can and, fin- and fishes a loosely rolled joint out of his breast pocket. Beer and weed. Beer, weed, and my dog. My three best friends. This time he says it out loud. The dog looks up with a cocked head, wondering if the man was saying something to her or about her. She is a clever animal, though not too clever, but extremely loyal and obedient. She has been with the man for a long time, since before the blackout and longer than any human woman for certain. She is still young by all appearance and action, but much like the man, she is beginning to feel some age in her joints. The man pats the table he's sitting on invitingly, and Sally the pitbull jumps up in a gracefully athletic manner. Where can I find a woman to depend on and trust the way I can you, Sally? That's all I want to know, he asks her. Expecting no answers, and the dog doesn't provide any, with words or barks, but licks the man's neck and leans her weight against his. He puts his arm around her and rubs her chest on her favorite spot, where her mostly gray coat meets a patch of white, and which she announces with a pant and a heavy sigh. You always know just what to say, Sal. He finishes his joint and his beer, looking at the moon once, once or twice in the process, but feeling comfortably numb and nearly ready for bed, less agitated. He slips off the table and stretches towards the sky, spilling some drips of beer on his shoulder from the tipped and elevated, nearly empty can, feeling and noticing but not minding. He wipes the dribbles with his other hand, still holding his roach, dropping ash where the beer drops were, still not minding. Slipping the extinguished roach into an old tin Altoid box to save for later, waste not, want not, he steps towards a clump of sagebrush and takes a piss, tossing his last beer can in the pile along the way. Let's go to bed, Sal, he says in his head. She seems to hear his thought and follows him back to the camper. Going straight to the bedroom. The man brushes his teeth with a stick, turns the fan on, the lights off, and strips naked before slipping into the sheets. Where should we go tomorrow, Sally? She stretches out on the top of the covers, snuggling up next to him. They had been here for three nights now, and as he made preparations for his broadcast, now completed. He would do another in a week or so. Anywhere, huh? Well, if we could go anywhere, I know where I'd go. But that's the problem. We can't go there. Some other motherfucker is there. With her. Probably. So I suppose we'll find some place else to go. Probably due for laundry and supplies anyhow. I suppose we'll head into town. It's Monday tomorrow. Yep, Monday. Should be quiet in town, just the way we like it. We can run our errands, fill up on fuel and water, maybe get a cheeseburger. How's that sound, old girl? She tilts her head up to look at his face, which is propped up by the pillow behind his head. He looks down at her. They make eye contact and yawn together. Sally closes her eyes and sleeps while he struggles to do the same, fearful of his own dreams. Chapter Two The Beach The man wakes up with the sunlight streaming in through the blinds. He feels the warmth next to him, eyes still closed. He rolls onto his side and nestles into the position of Big Spoon. He runs his hands over her bare waist, tracing his fingers up her stomach, around the navel and between her breasts, squeezing one softly. He then gently slips the same hand between her cheek and the pillow, lifts gently and kisses her exposed cheek. He opens his eyes, seeing a smile, the smile. She wiggles a bit and giggles, making it clear that he's got the all clear, feeling his hard morning wood between her ass cheeks. What a way to wake up, he thinks, slipping inside her. Closing his eyes again. Good morning, he whispers in her ear, giving it a nibble. She moans. Back at you, big guy. After a short time, they both climax together, as it should be when two become one. He removes himself from her and her bed and walks to the window, stretching as he looks out over the great eerie lake from 20 floors up. Throwing open the blinds, he relishes the warm sun hitting his naked body, feeling no prying eyes so far up off the ground. "'What shall we do today, my love?' he asks, without turning from the window. He is letting his genitals warm in the sun's rays. "'Anything, everything, and nothing,' she replies. "'What do you think about going to the lake? "'We could stretch out on the beach, play some cards,' Ask your sister and Jake to join. That sounds perfect. Now go get the coffee going and join me in the shower. I'm not done with you yet. Yes, ma'am. He turns to watch her as she slips out of the bed and walks towards the bathroom naked, turning to look at him seductively before almost closing the door behind her. He hears the water run and sees steam billow through the cracks around the door. He goes to the kitchen and fills the coffee pot with water. He adds the filter and grounds before hitting the power button. Thank God for pre-ground coffee beans and automatic machines. This girl will be the death of me, I swear. He thinks as he hurries towards the bathroom, already hard again at the thought of her. What took you so long? She asks as he steps into the spacious, ornately tiled shower. Give me that thing she demands grabbing his cock feeling it surge and swell no one ever got me this hard in my life except you i know how do you know because no one ever got this hard for me until you i highly doubt that doubt it all you want it's true they were all just boys this here she says, patting his swollen chest with one hand and stroking him with the other, feeling it grow more, is a man. Now do as I say and give me that thing. Now. Turn around, he growls, bending her over under the hot water, slipping back into his favorite place, a place of comfort and trust, desire and lust. She moans loudly at the feel of him, saying, Harder! If they had made love in the bed just before, now, in the shower, they are fucking. Later on the beach, four young bodies stretch out in the sunlight, soaking up every drop penetrating the skies above Cleveland, Ohio. They smoke, drink, play, and swim for brief spurts in the frigid waters of the massive northern lake. They bask in the day as if it would never end. They decide at some point to share some acid as it is clearly the afternoon of all afternoons and should be enjoyed as such, one that creates echoes of a beautiful song which might only be heard the once. Chapter three, the motel. On the drive into town, he has a flash of a thought while he almost never remembers his dreams for a brief moment, he feels as though he dreamt of her. No enough he says out loud, not loud enough, not loudly but sternly, immediately irritated and still half asleep and a little dehydrated. Sally looks at him from the passenger side of the lumbering f two fifty when she realizes he wasn't talking to her but to himself, she gazes back out the window at the wide and bleak Burr Desert, seeing the Henry Mountains growing closer as they drive away from their short-lived home near the San Rafael Swell in a place called Goblin Valley, full of rocks resembling the place's namesake. The two nomads rolled down Highway 24 towards Hanksville, a tiny town of little significance except that there's nothing and almost no one around for 50 miles in any direction, save a few Mormon cowboys and a few freeloading campers. At least in Hanksville, they had cheeseburgers, gasoline, a modest grocery store, and meth. Although the man didn't go in for the meth, he figured at least it gave these poor souls something to do in a godforsaken place like Hanksville. Once upon a time, they thought there was gold, uranium, and whatever else in the area around Hanksville, but it turns out there really wasn't much. He is glad to see this familiar sight grow closer, the Henry Mountains being among his favorite places, as well as Robber's Roost to the east and Capitol Reef to the west. There's a story he remembers reading about an old prospector living in those mountains about 20 miles outside of Hanksville in Eagle City, population one until the mid-1930s. He would come into town with just enough gold to resupply and keep going for a while more, never making his fortune, at least as far as anyone knew. Supposedly Eagle City, a place with more grand a name than it deserved, was a town of around 100 people in its heyday. Mostly prospectors, some supporting businesses, and one very successful prostitute. Supposedly, only one man of these hundred was dumb enough to stay after the minor Henry Mountain gold rush was declared over. Wayne County, where Hanksville is located, was known for having the lowest population density of any county in the continental United States, at the time of the last census, when it held less than one person per square mile. While there is a lot of beautiful country around Hanksville, the town itself is a dreary, sad-looking place, and always has been. The only sane people living there are the avid and active outdoors folk, who take advantage of the rough and stunning landscape for adventure. It is no place for a novice, with many places where if you hike in, you may never find your way back out. He had lived near here, in Capitol Reef, for a year, well before the blackout. As a young man, he interned for the National Park Service. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, he spent his year living deep inside Capitol Reef National Park, although there were many other names for it long forgotten now. It was and is in the man's eyes a place of great mystery. People had lived in the area between and beyond the Henry Mountains and Capitol Reef on and off for what seems like eons. There were massive carvings on the cliff walls, petroglyphs, some of which are thought to be around 10,000 years old or older, depicting unearthly creatures, shadowy gods from another time, as well as abstract maps, strange symbols, and depictions of humanoids and animals, some now extinct. It is impossible to capture the nature of this space, as it feels all at once both terrifyingly and um, enormously dangerous, yet somehow inviting and even intoxicating. It is completely inhospitable yet irresistibly seductive just like someone else he knows. Damn her, he thinks. As he drives, he daydreams about his days at Capitol Reef when he had no concerns except which of the lady interns he wanted to screw and everything he could learn about the place and the job. It was a year of good times with good people in a place out of time and space, almost like being on another planet entirely. There used to even be a Mars colony research center nearby, which, as one might reason, was difficult to sustain. The small village of Fruta is the navel of God's green earth, or at least the Eden of Wayne County, as many have described it. Surrounding, or surrounded by desert, but shockingly green, Fruta has served as home to natives mormons and eventually three dozen park service employees and interns the man remembers the police officers he was friends with federal agents known as rangers he wonders what those men and women went on to do during and after the blackout it seems to him a slim possibility they would still be around here they were never welcome here in the first place according to the locals He wasn't sure if he was welcome either. Gonna have to ask around town, find out what's what, he thinks, and who's still here. The man had not been in this area since the world had completely changed, but he had faith that this place might not be quite as altered as the average. He had tried to make a go of it with some folks in various other places for some time, moving from one small village to another, places where he knew people or knew of people and worked to keep or worked for his keep. He had many contacts and a good reputation by the time of the near collapse as a helpful, skilled, and knowledgeable man. It was how he maintained the network he needed to remain up to speed on some news from all around the world. The time of over the phone communication and broadly accessible internet service is now over except in government controlled zones. It became a privilege only allowed to the citizens of the government occupied zones prioritized in an effort to pacify them in the autonomous zones. There is more of a patchwork of independent networks known as I Nets and everything has to be encrypted and protected with firewalls for privacy. Easy information became a thing of the past. No more search engines, social networks, forums, or chat rooms, only private databases and servers loosely connected via uplink to hacker-controlled satellites. It is a tenuous operation at best, and many back channels and alternative means of communication had been devised to make up for the difficulty of use and unreli- unreliable nature of the larger so-called rogue net. The governments in D.C. and L.A. are constantly trying to shut down satellites as well as hack and or bomb suspected roguenet server stations, which they would spot with thermal imaging until everything was moved underground. Server rooms and satellite dishes had to be hidden and camouflaged as they are just as vulnerable to the autonomy movement as ammo caches and Arms depots, critical data such as crypto, cre- crypto keys and passphrases have to be carefully encrypted, such and carried on one's person in the event of a cyber attack on one's home network. Everything and everyone now has to be insulated and obfuscated for the safety of the whole network. The man remembers a time not long ago when he could look up almost anything he wanted to know on his phone in an instant. Now, however, it is downright dangerous to send a simple email. These things are not on his mind as he hauls himself, his home, and his companion animal down the desert highway at a comfortable 90 miles per hour on downhills, 70 on uphills he has not yet seen a car, motorcycle, or truck since pulling away from the strange goblin-shaped rocks and crevices of upheaved stone known as San Rafael. Called a swell for its wave-like appearance, appearance, this monocline is only beaten in splendor and size by that of the water pocket fold, which runs north to south through Capitol Reef for nearly a 100 miles, making it the largest monocline on the planet. These two features are what make the, the area so difficult to access and hence so relatively unexplored even to this day. The name Capital Reef also has a nautical origin, as it refers to reefs as a barrier to ships in shallow oceans, which ironically this place once was. Similarly to San Rafael Swell, only... Through certain places in Capitol Reef, only through certain places in Capitol Reef's water pocket fold can one dare navigate a car, usually requiring a serious 4x4 for most routes. Otherwise the highly the highway is the only option. While the Utahs had done a fine job of keeping most of the highways in good shape, the back trails were a different story. It was common in the days and years before... I'm sorry, in the days and years following the blackout for people to drive up a jeep trail, blocking the trail behind them with large boulders to ensure nobody followed them. Their final destination was rarely discovered, but a handful of abandoned vehicles had been claimed and recovered from the canyon lands and mountains after the reopening of certain trails. Some assumed suicide, some say aliens, while some figure they're still up there living like Jeremiah Johnson or the slightly less fictitious Daniel Boone. The trail into their campsite in Goblin Valley was relatively easy to pass with the camper. The man had only pulled far enough off the highway to get out of sight, figuring he wouldn't stay long. He never stays long. Fearfully, he moves around in his mobile home with his pirate podcasting equipment, receiving news via satellite transmission from a secret server that only three members of his network have access to, aside from him. His trusted accomplices receive news from a handful of sources each, who in turn have their own sources, so on and so forth down the chain. For the safety of everyone, nobody uses names, only code names and aliases. The man, as the show's personality, goes by the polymath, a word semi-synonymous with jack-of-all-trades or renaissance man, in an effort to inspire his listeners to develop their skills in order to take on more challenging problems. Everyone in the network agreed the less they know about each other, the better. As far as any of them could tell, They are the only broad-reaching, non-government-sponsored news network on the continent. There have been rumors of similar shows getting started in Central America and in Canada, but neither had yet developed a means of broadcasting or distribution. That being the most difficult part. It is easy enough for certain folks to hack a satellite and send encrypted messages from one place to another. That was a simple matter of knowing the key of a recipient's chain of private IP addresses, which change at regular intervals in a series. The technology allowing for this is known as a pirate box and has had many forms and renditions. These boxes are essentially handmade and sold only to trusted people. His pirate box is one of a kind capable of connecting to up to 72 other pirate boxes simultaneously, allowing it to distribute data to multiple users at once within the satellite's broadcast zone. All other pirate boxes had only been able to share from one server to another. This new technology allows for what equates to the first widely distributed podcast in many years, as opposed to small local network shows which had already sprung up around the continent. The man's pirate box was built by a close friend and known legend in certain certain circles, the first to hack a broadcast satellite for the autonomy movement and taught others to do the same, a man known only as Geek. This new era era of deep mistrust online means that folks are all but done with anything but strict peer-to-peer data sharing and incorporate multiple levels of privacy protection. This podcast is only possible thanks to the man's network of real relationships. He travels and visits with friends of his past, establishing the distribution network for his broadcast by setting up secure transmissions to one trusted person at a time, who will will then share it with their local INET. This is the new Pirate Radio, as they had found the only way to get information out effectively without in- interception from government intelligence the only risk being an undercover operative inside of one of the local networks capturing and interrogating someone in the know but people in the autonomous zone had become quite skeptical and most and most communities online or real no longer welcomed outsiders as everyone knows that loose lips sink ships. If there was a breach of a local INET, it had to be untraceable back to the original source. That said, there had been cases of turncoats who were known in the community for a long time and were trusted by all before committing their betrayal of espionage. The man had been using his pirate box to broadcast for about a year, beginning with only a handful of receivers, but during which time he had driven around the Midwest, Great Plains, and Northern Rockies, making contact with various people he knew, setting up more broadcast hubs for the podcast. The intention was also to keep making contact with more possible sources for information as well, trying to improve the flow of news back to his central team. So far, he had 33 people on the receiving end in different communities scattered about. His goal for this journey is to get to the full 72 which his pirate box could handle before ending the long and arduous road trip. His trip was sponsored entirely by Geek, whose idea it had been to start the Rebel News show. Geek had reached out to him specifically, knowing the man had a background of varied experiences, travel, and was a bit of a generalist, as well as having many contacts around the country, not to mention a good voice. Geek had the money, but not the hard skills required for such a trip. Figured the man was the man for the job. He also knew from stories shared late at night at bars and around campfires That the man could handle himself in a pinch, so long as the stories told were at least half true. He also knew the man needed purpose, that his heart was broken, and while he survived in good fashion through the hard years, he was still not settled or satisfied. Geek had the feeling this man was probably the only man with the network and skills to do what was necessary in connecting these various communities. He prayed it was the case. When Geek asked, the man simply said, sure. This man, despite his heartbreak, or perhaps because of it, had turned himself fully towards the cause since the beginning. At various points since the blackout, he was a militiaman, a messenger, a transporter, and was chosen to lead his squad at the Battle of Columbus, where critical trade routes were re-established between zones in Appalachia and the Midwest. He had saved Geek's life in a government raid in Cincinnati shortly thereafter, and, there, and they had been friends ever since, setting up headquarters in Indianapolis at the crossroads of America. It was in the midst of the chaos of those days that he and Geek came to, came to trust each other fully. Most of their wartime friends were now gone, not that the war was over, but most of the killing seemed to be. Now it was more of a war of words, the man thought. While the distribution of information within the autonomous zones is very difficult, getting it into the government-controlled zones was even harder. There is a grassroots, grassroots series of networks of direct messaging from people inside the government zones to folks outside and vice versa. This is how bits of information came and went, but as usual, it had to be person-to-person, peer-to-peer, like one giant game of telephone from one computer to the next. Much of this information was slow, incomplete, or unreliable. There is also the ham radio network, but many people are reluctant to share too much specific information over the air, as the Language codes used have been broken at times by the government AI computers. Encryption is better, but radio is good for critical, time-sensitive information and is used as such. Finally, old-fashioned letters with direct carriers are often found to be the most reliable means of telling someone something sensitive. Old-fashioned numeric book ciphers are used to encrypt the messages traveling into and across enemy territory on paper but again none of this is on the mind of the man as he drives away from goblin valley towards hanksville his mind is on two things food and clean water he drives past hoodoos goblins spires and buttes along his way one particular formation off in the distance but clearly visible known as Factory Butte, is known well to him as he had once hiked to the top of it with an older couple he knew, James and Sandy, during his time working at the park. I wonder if, they, if they're still alive. They'd have to be 80 by now, the man thinks to himself. People in this part of the world live hard lives in a harsh environment, but often would grow old without ever ceasing to work. He thinks that it would be nice to see them, again, among others, but won't count chickens until they hatch, knowing that the route through Capitol Reef to Torrey might be blocked. These Mormons seem to take good care of their roads around here, and 24 rolls right through the fold. I bet it'll go, he ponders. These thoughts are unknown to Sally, who sits on the other side of the big bench seat, watching the world roll by, knowing and not knowing how the world is. She is oblivious to the problems of mankind, but aware of the law of tooth and claw, the truth of life, death, thirst, hunger, and killing. She knows all there is to know about these things, more than most men, in fact. The one thing deep in her bones she had never known but always, was, but always wanted was to have pups. This ability had been stripped from her shortly after birth. She watches a group of condors spiraling in the distance. Something is dead, she knows, just as the condors do. And in her dog brain, she also knows that she's glad it isn't her. As the two get closer to Hanksville, the man pulls off off the shoulder at the bridge. He checks his pistol, a Glock 17, confirming there is a round in the chamber, despite already knowing there is as always, and he slips it back into the holster on his hip. He knows that generally, bridges are bad places to stop, never knowing when a carjacker might strike. But he has to take a piss. Beer from the night before is still making its way out of his system, and he knows this river well, so he feels compelled to piss in it. The Dirty Devil River, as it is known or as it had been named by the men of the Fremont expedition many years before. John C. Fremont, the Civil War officer-turned-explorer, set out to discover a potential railroad route to the Pacific Ocean and endured challenges much greater than the more revered Lewis and Clark Expedition, which had sought a Northwest Passage. Many of the terrain features of the Southwest were named by, the, by this handful of men, or those of the John Wesley Powell expedition. Fremont's mission was never realized. Half his crew died, and the other half nearly mutinied, but didn't. The cold, hard dedication of Fremont is still that of legend. He was a man who could not be stopped, a dynamo. His expedition occurred 13 years before John Wesley Powell's, the famous one-armed explorer who made the first successful running of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon and beyond, exploring its waterways and tributaries, as well as the area of Utah in which the man now travels. He thinks more highly of the Fremont expedition, though. He imagines them pulling their riverboats through the shallow, murky water of the Dirty Devil River. According to the tales, one member of the party announced, this river is one dirty devil, and it's stuck. Too thick to drink, too thin to plow, the locals would say of its silty water. Many places in this desert land of the American Southwest carried strange, sometimes silly, and often foreboding names like Dead Horse Point, because a horse apparently died there once, Hell's Backbone, a rocky spine which terrifies travelers to this day, Box Death Hollow, where many head of livestock have fallen to their death and robbers roost where outlaws like Butch Cassidy and his hole in the wall gang evaded lawmen who were too afraid to follow them and their stolen cattle into the narrow treacherous Canyon, which feeds into the dirty devil. He climbs the concrete wall of the bridge to get a clear, unobstructed view down the, down to the chocolate milk colored water meandering lazily below he unzips pulls out his member and drains his bladder with glee a bit too yellow but there's decent water up in hanksville might as well drink more before filling back up he thinks better water in tory though i wonder if james and sandy or ed and tracy are still there he dribbles the last few drops and makes himself once more presentable or at least as presentable as can be for a man living on the road. He is unshaven, uncombed and generally unkempt, but there's clean water in Hanksville, much cleaner than the slurry of a river under the bridge. Maybe there'll be a hot shower to be had. He thinks the dangerously tempting notion rarely creeps into the man's head as a shower had become quite a luxury. Hot water. Isn't cheap. "'and neither is soap. "'But as modest and decrepit of a town as Hanksville is "'and always has been, "'the the man still allows the thought to tease him. "'He jumps off the concrete ledge back onto the asphalt "'and looks around. "'Still no one to be seen, nothing of concern. "'This highway was always empty, even before the blackout, "'and yet he had never seen a pothole on it anywhere.'" How is it that one of the loneliest stretches of road on the planet always seemed to have a fresh blacktop, he wondered. There's got to be some folks in Hanksville, he thinks uncertainly, lumbering back towards the pickup truck, fashioning his belt and zipper and zipping himself back up, whistling for Sally, who has just finished leaving a turd as a marker for for future canines, declaring that the bridge now belongs to her. He walks towards the door of the airstream, unlocks it, climbs inside and comes out a few moments later with a large lidded plastic box, locking the trailer's door behind him. He carries the box down to the bank of the dirty devil river, Sally following closely behind. He looks both ways when he reaches the water, still nobody. He opens the box and removes a small device with a long wire a shrouded propeller-looking thing with an integrated alternator and a series of cables and stakes. He tells Sally to stay and walks directly into the muddy river, not bothering to remove his sandals, finding a place in the middle of suitable depth and noting it before crossing to the other side with the device, trailing the, the long wire the whole way, connecting the propeller to the box. He places one large plastic stake into the silty sand five yards upriver, walks back into the water to the formerly decided upon location, deploys his small electric turbine, and finally walks back to his starting place, dragging the final stake and attached cable. He places the stake in the bank in its proper place, five meters upriver from the turbine, directly across from the first tightening the last cord until everything feels mildly snug. The current pushes against the now-secured device and the propeller begins to spin. He walks over to the box with the wire protruding from it, opens the lid, and reels in the excess wire. He confirms the little red light is flashing, indicating active charging. He closes and camouflages the box by sprinkling some sand on the lid, making it blend in with everything around it. Finally, he walks back to the truck, opens the door, and lets Sally jump up in. He climbs in behind her and drives on, checking the mirrors out of habit as he merges back onto the road. There is still no one else in sight. The man thinks about a day he once had, not long before the great blackout, when he was driving to a client's property near Bedford, Indiana. Barely a cent to his name, just enough gas to get there and back again, He worked for cash, cutting grass, weed-whacking the fence line, carrying feed to the chickens, and fixing things that broke down on Dee and Dean's homestead, which the man always thought ought to be a bed and breakfast someday. They would be the first people he would visit when his journey was finished, he decided. She was like a grandmother to him and Dean a grandfather. Dean's health had been failing since before he left, So the man had said his goodbyes already, suspecting he would never see Dean again. He didn't like thinking about Dee all alone, even with her neighbors checking in. He knew she would be heartbroken for her lost lover, her companion of over 50 years, no matter how long she had prepared for his departure. The man who sat quietly on the porch with her while she would knit. He thinks of the day of work as well as the after after work porch swing and cold beer. That was a good day, he said, remembering the simplicity of it and the love shared between them. He sees the first glimmers of civilization, an old wrecking yard and auto shop, which it was impossible to discern whether or not the business was still in operation. It looked just as decrepit and deserted as it ever had, so the man figured it must still be open, assuming the client might have something to offer. Auto mechanics with know-how did very well immediately after the blackout, fixing up and replacing solenoids and fuses on old carbureted trucks and cars. While some ECUs could be repaired, anything with a complex computer took much more time to get back on the road. Simpler, older vehicles could could fire up with a few minor repairs so long as parts could be found or fabricated. Hanksville city limits. Elevation 4295. Population 219. City limits. What a joke, the man says to himself with with a grin. The green metal sign is riddled with bullet holes to the point that some of its numbers and letters are nearly illegible. Someone had cut one of the two square galvanized posts from underneath it, perhaps to use as material to mend something else, as scrapping and scavenging had become par for the course. The sign looks as though it would not stand much longer, wiggling in the slightest breeze, while at the same time it appears as though it has already been there for an eternity precariously balanced on the edge of destruction like so many of the massive hoodoos and spires surrounding it ready to come down at any time the man thinks about stopping again to fire a round or two through the green sign for fun curious if it would be the final straw to break the metallic camel's back but thinks the better of it that's no way to sell say hello he thinks town is now in view and a half mile ahead and a vehicle appeared to be pumping gas at the old Sinclair gas station called Hollow Mountain, a curious little roadside attraction. This gas, this gas station sea store is hollowed out from the sandstone bedrock, creating a man-made cave, providing weary travelers with a naturally cool, although a bit dank, place to get out of the sun and sand. Many people used to stop here on their way to Lake Powell, towing boats and jet skis, Now one might see the occasional fishing boat or raft heading that way, but none of the frivolous and joy-seeking toys of yesteryear. The man wonders how many more years until that big, disgusting lake would be filled to the brim with silt, and how many more years after that it would take the forces of weight, water, wind, and entropy to break that damned Glen Canyon Dam which is called by the same name as the place that it thoroughly destroyed. The man remembers going to Lake Powell, named after the explorer, with a bunch of young and beautiful people to enjoy a day of frivolity. He smiles, remembering the girls in their skimpy bikinis, a sight no longer enjoyed except perhaps by some in private. Beautiful young women now feared exposing themselves due to the possibility of attracting the wrong man's attention. Back then, nobody worried. Everyone on the lake was enjoying the benefits of living in La La Land, and it was exceptional. He remembers swimming with one girl, whose name now escapes him, into the narrow cove and out of sight from the group, climbing the slick rock onto a narrow ledge, pushing the firm young ass of the female with a tingle in his loins to help her up the last bit of the climb before they both jumped back down into the narrow strip of impossibly deep water from 20 feet above. Not his highest cliff jump ever, but still exhilarating, especially with a half naked naked vixen who had been eye fucking him all day. They climbed up to the ledge again, but this time did not jump back down for some time. They played the dangerous game known to all cliff-dwelling natives, ledge sex. He remembers asking about birth control and being assured there was no need for concern. He almost wishes, in hindsight, he had knocked her up. Like Sally the dog, the man always felt a strong urge to procreate, but had never followed through. Unlike the dog, he had no good excuse. The two entwined on the ledge, enjoying a moment together. It was nice, he remembers, but it wasn't the same as with her. Passing the hollow mountain, he swings down to Stans, a larger gas station with the not-so-famous Stans Burger Shack attached. Across the street was the long-ago-closed Blondie's, a restaurant which had been run into the ground and then lit ablaze by the former meth-addicted owners in an act of insurance fraud that fooled nobody in town or at the insurance agency. The ruins of the little diner remain unchanged since the man's last visit here. Nothing in the desert seems to go anywhere in much of a hurry except maybe the jackrabbit hare the relics of many different eras of occupation could still be found strewn about in this part of the world. Fences dilapidated cabins and corrals from the 1800s, cliff dwellings of the ancestral Puebloans gone some eight or nine hundred years with bits of corn cob and human feces still littering the ground, as if they decided not to sweep up before disappearing forever. And let us not forget the previously mentioned artwork etched into the rock walls, going back to the desert archaic people nearly 10,000 years ago. The man figures as he pulls the truck and trailer into stands. If it isn't profitable to tear it down in this area, it might last forever. At least by our perception, he pulls parallel to the pump and steps down. He wonders wanders into the convenience store ringing the suspended bell above the door as it swings closed behind him it is cool inside air conditioning another luxury he thinks again of a shower but but has other business to attend to first he turns to see a pudgy jack black looking leather faced fellow who the man knows to be the same clerk from years back what say you partner The man asks the clerk. I say I've had it with this doggone desert town. Hot enough round here to scald a snake and dry enough to peel a porcupine, I swear. And my dog of 18 years is about to die any darn time now. Well, I can't do much about any of that, mister, but I'm hoping you can put a little... I'm hoping I can put a little change in your pocket. How's about a fill-up? You got sats? The man asks Mm mm-hmm how much gonna need at least 40 gallons the clerk crunches some numbers on his calculator 76,000 sats ought to do it sounds good to me the man pulls out a small handheld device which resembles a scientific calculator with buttons and a small display he asks what's your network passphrase the clerk points to a sign above his head The man enters the series of numbers, letters, and symbols, gaining access to the local wireless router, and asks, what's the address? The clerk pulls out a similar device to the man's, but larger and older. He punches a few keys and turns the device around to show the man another long multi-character code. The man enters it, plugs in the agreed-upon amount, and hits send. A green light flashes on the clerk's device, and there is an audible ka-ching. The clerk turns the device back around towards himself and and confirms the amount received. "'Son of a bitch,' the man says with a snap of his finger. "'Meant to order a cheeseburger, malt, and some fries while I was at it. "'I'm so damn hungry I nearly forgot. "'Don't sweat it, feller. "'We can run another transaction. "'More hassle for you than it is for me. "'That or we could trade.' You got any bullets? Not that I'm willing to spare, he says, resting his hand on the butt of his exposed pistol, not in a threatening manner, but to make clear he's comfortable with his weapon. What about soap? I've got a I've got a bar of homemade soap I could spare. Two bars, and I'll give you fries, a shake, and two burgers, one for the road. I'll wrap everything separate so the buns don't get soggy. We bake our own buns in-house, tomatoes and onions, and lettuce come from the garden out back. We also got house-made mayonnaise, and the beef comes from the Bray's ranch, rounded up off Boulder Mountain last fall, and finished on grain. I knew Mike Bray when I worked over there at the park. Him and his brother, although I can't remember his brother's name, they were both maintenance crew down there. This statement was made for a purpose. He wanted information, so... He needed to seem halfway local, or at the very least, informed. Yes, sir. Mike comes in now and again, lives up in Bicknell, though, so we don't see much of him. rest of the family's up in Loa. He always was the black sheep of that bunch. Wandered around a bunch before coming on back home. He's one of the few that ever left Wayne County and actually returned guess he figured he'd rustle cattle with his dad and brothers when he realized there wasn't anything better anyplace else how do you think he'd feel about a visitor been about 15 years since i saw him last but depends on if you think he'd shoot me on the spot or if he'd give me a chance to say hello he ain't gone senile or anything has he oh no more or less crazy than he ever was I can't say if he'll shoot you or not because I don't know if he likes you or not. But he does take visitors. He's got lots of friends for a nut job. Yeah, I'm about the same. That's why he and I got along so well. A couple of nuts in a sack. How's the road heading that way and beyond? All clear? Well, it was yesterday. Uh, That's the last time anybody's come from that way. As far as I know, most people stopping here heading to and from the lake. Most of them from up in Green River or over in Moab. Down here for the channel catfish. But some fella yesterday, he said he come down from Boulder Mountain. Kind of like you, actually. A nomad type. And a big son of a gun. He's still in town, I think. I saw him out front of the motel earlier this morning doing push-ups looked like trouble at first but acted straight enough you get a name for that fella what the heck do you think did i ask you your name jeepers fair enough you grumpy old cuss the man said with a smile feeding off the old man's rough-edged playfulness well i think we've got a deal i'll go get your bars of soap you gonna pump the gas or should i you go right ahead. I'll authorize your 40 gallons and I'll get your burgers going. He begins talking to himself more than to the man. I remember a time when we used to have all them young Bloods flipping and serving them burgers. Now it's just me. Only a few youngsters around here anymore and all they do is smoke them glass pipes and make themselves all stupid and cranked up. The ones that left the church... Those good-for-nothing-no-good-gosh-darn-rotten-son-of-a-guns? Aw, frick! The clerk is clearly a little unhinged, probably from being in the desert a little too long, but he is managing to somehow keep this rinky-dink operation afloat on his own, commendably. The man always got a kick out of the way Mormon folks skirted their own rules. No cursing allowed. Allowed? So they come up with some alternative, some creative, creative alternatives. The man is reminded of some rumors he had heard while living in this area previously of what the Mormon teenagers called soaking insertion without humping and the poophole hole loophole in which it was reasoned <laughs> that a good Mormon girl could take a boy's cock up the asshole, but still be considered a, a virgin. Brilliant. The boy's still going to hell. I guess he just doesn't care. He wants to fuck. Can't say I blame him. The man thinks to himself amusingly. But he dares not smile at this line of thinking, knowing that the clerk is clearly agitated. Good help is hard to come by these days, the man says in response, especially in a place like Hanksville, I imagine. Damn straight, the clerk replies. The man now allowed himself to smile, knowing that this good Mormon clerk, probably an elder in his tiny town's LDS church, had just committed the mortal sin by letting out damn. The man chuckles to himself on his way out the door and back towards the truck. Some real characters around here, he thinks to himself. Not much, not much has changed. He grabs an empty gas can from the bed of the truck, and places it on the ground. Then he lifts the gas pump handle, hits the only illuminated button, which had long ago lost its sticker indicating the fuel's octane level. The small screen appears to say ready to pump, although it was nearly impossible to read with the sun glaring down. The man tilts the nozzle towards the ground, letting out a single drop of fuel to collect on the end of the steel tube. He looks at it closely, dabs his finger to the nozzle, rubs the fuel between his fingers and thumb, feeling for slipperiness and grit, sensing neither, and finally sniffs it. Looks good, smells good, probably from Texas. Now to find out if this guy's ripping me off, he thinks to himself. The man proceeds to fill up the five-gallon red plastic gas can, watching the numbers on the pump, pumps display closely until it indicates five gallons dispensed the can is full not quite at the full line but only half an inch uh, half an inch short good enough he figures this had become necessary since the blackout gas station owners would recalibrate their pumps to scam people out of their money it had become common to pay for 20 gallons and only get 18 or less while the man hoped, The clerk wasn't watching him for fear of causing offense. He assumed the clerk would understand the basic rule. Trust is earned, not given. Besides, the man knows the clerk is in the kitchen preparing his lunch and dinner and is therefore not not likely to be watching. Don't forget the soap, the man says out loud to himself. Sally pops her head out the open driver's side window at the sound of his voice and watches the man slip the nozzle into the filler neck of the F-250 and lock the handle open. He watches the numbers tick by on the gas pump as he pats Sally on the head and rubs her ears. He notices something moving out of the corner of his eye. He turns his head towards the low-roofed motel to see a muscular and beastly figure performing what appeared to be some form of Tai Chi barefoot on a small patch of surprisingly green grass which contrasts darkly with the endless sea of bare earth and rock around it the business is called the whispering sands motel which he always found to be a less than appealing name for a place where people sleep on beds which had previously been used by many others the man doesn't care to know what the sands whispered about And in fact, he'd prefer no sand in the room at all, if possible. But that is not likely, given the surroundings. The figure in the motel's front lawn is shifting his weight around with a smooth, flowing motion, pausing momentarily in different martial arts style poses. poses. The man hears the gas pump go chunk and checks the display, which indicates the 40 gallons have been dispensed more or less. He glances back at the figure in the distance and tries to reason out his approach. In his estimation, this is not someone to sneak up on. Approach with caution, the man thinks to himself, getting an ex military vibe even from the distance. He steps back into the gas station shop and turns the corner towards the small dining area and snack counter, where he smells the unmistakable, unmistakably american aroma of ground beef patties cooking on a flat top grill he feels his stomach rumble with anticipation how long has it been since a good cheeseburger and a shake he wonders and can't remember at least since the dakotas maybe six months ago there's some good beef up there still the rotund clerk comes into view with a tray carrying two brown paper sacks and a very large milkshake, with both a plastic straw and spoon sticking out of it. The man starts to salivate, knowing what those unassuming packages contain: hot, juicy cheeseburgers. Perhaps that fella doing tai chi likes cheeseburgers. The man thinks, doesn't look like no, doesn't look like a vegetarian to me. Not many of the, those left, anyways. At least not in the autonomous zones. The clerk sets down the tray on the snack bar and looks at the man with anticipation, holding on, to the, holding on to it with one hand symbolically. You got something for me? He finally asks. Oh, shit. I knew I was going to forget to grab your damn soap. I'll be right back. He never felt the need not to curse in front of the Mormons, as he liked showing them how much fun he could be. He turns and jogs out the door, fishes his keys out of his pocket, unlocks the camper, and runs in. He grabs two bars from under the sink and takes note of how many are left. One unused bar, half a bar or so on the tray by the sink, another half bar in the camper's rarely used shower. Too much wasted water and propane, valuable resources. Basically leaves us two full bars— About two months' worth. I suppose that'll have to do. We can always get more. Or live without, he thinks. Soap had become astronomically more valuable after the blackout. It was an item that was looted extensively from stores and manufacturers shut down never to reopen. This made the market for homemade soap grow rapidly, with homesteaders applying traditional methods to make soap from animal fat and lye, made from wood ash. Many people were now generating a relatively comfortable living through selling and bartering their handmade soaps. The man has friends back home who would resupply him upon his return. The man begins to think, perhaps the soap will give me an excuse to go home. Not sure I'll make it to 72 on this trip. Only have 33 so far after a whole year. Getting them all is gonna be tough, but necessary. A year on the road and only 33. What am I even doing here? Is this accomplishing anything? Of course it is. Geek says it's important, and he's the smartest guy I know. Quit doubting yourself and keep working. Fuck the soap. What do I have to get home for anyways? Well, I'd, I'd like to spend some time with Dee and some others, definitely miss certain people, but the road is home for now, so quit feeling sorry for yourself. He occasionally has moments of self-doubt, as anyone does, but he had trained himself to notice them and work through them in order to achieve a more productive mindset. It is probably due to the way he was raised by well-intentioned, evangelical, non-denominational Christians who instilled the fear of God in the young man, but not always in the best of ways. He was raised to judge and be judged, which in his later estimation is the exact opposite of what Jesus wanted. Words like purity and chastity were bandied about, despite the fact that neither of his parents were virgins at the time of their marriage. A fact that was never outright admitted, but was fairly obvious. His folks loved him with intensity, perhaps too much, and therefore they did not speak often anymore. His mother would say things like, feel free to call any time and wish we saw more of you, but that was before the blackout. They were still living in the same house on the golf course in the man's childhood home. Not much had changed in their world despite everything changing in most everyone else's. They rode out the rough years in relative comfort and security of their gated community, far enough from any action to have the luxury of ignoring the bloody reality happening all around them. He had carried some resentment at that, given how much energy he was putting into the resistance and how indifferent they were to any of it, saying it was all part of God's plan. He would sit He would still visit occasionally out of a sense of familial obligation more than genuine desire. He would give his mother a hug and let her kiss him on the cheek. They would sit and eat a meal, making the much-dreaded small talk, inevitably turning to big talk by the man, to his parents' chagrin. He couldn't stand to answer the same question of, so what's new, multiple times in a single meal. It was painful, but he continued to go knowing they would never understand if he removed himself from their lives entirely. That said, he actually preferred this new world in regards to how he related to his parents and siblings. In the previous era, he would get into constant trouble from his sisters and mother for being difficult to reach, despite the ease of communication in those days. Now he needs no excuses. Why didn't you ever respond to my text or emails? One sister asked him once, demanding he answers for his sin of elusiveness. Because I didn't feel like it, or didn't quite know what to say, would be his response. It drove his mother up a wall in the old world not to get an RSVP from the man for anything. He refused to commit too far in advance. He had tried to explain this to his mother that she would have better luck if she asked him no more than a week in advance to any event. His brain didn't like commitments too far into the future, as one never knew what might come up. So he would say maybe instead of no, hating to be a disappointment, which of course he found that he was anyways. Did you get my texts about the concert we're all going to on the 19th? His mother would ask. Yep, but that's next month. Wasn't sure what to say. Well, we need to buy the tickets. Well, if I have to say yes or no, I'll say no. But can I just buy a ticket the day of? You know, it's all general admission, right? Well, I guess. It's the concert in the park never sells out and it is open city, open seating. But we're trying to get our plans together. Well, you go right ahead. I'll stay a soft maybe. This would drive his mother insane, never getting a firm commitment, except on big ideas like liberty and anarchism, which she began to despise hearing coming from her son's mouth. Why do you have to be so extreme all the time? Why did they have to break their own rules? Taking away our weapons, our income, our property... Locking us in our homes and trying to force vaccinate the whole world? Fuck them. I will die for my liberty if I must. Don't you remember how this country was founded? In blood? Whenever the conversation went this direction, his mother would inevitably bring up the fact, you used to be such a quiet, tender, loving boy, my little cuddle monster. What happened? I must have done something wrong as a mother for you, to be this way. Or maybe it's the thing you did right, he did he thought to himself. He never intended to hurt his mother's feelings, but it seemed that she did intend to hurt his. My sweet little cuddle monster, what changed? Well, Mom, in essence, my balls dropped and I decided to cuddle with girls my own age. Would you rather have I stayed in your lap? Till you died of old age? Jesus Christ! "'Why do you have to speak this way? "'And using the Lord's name in vain? "'Not in this house, young man!' "'All right, I'll head home. "'Another lovely meal. Thank you!' The sarcasm was not lost on his parents. His father, who understood the son much better than the mother, would usually try to straddle the fence to keep things civil Explaining to his wife why his son behaved this way, as he at least partially sympathized with his son's passion and intolerance for government-imposed bullshit. His mother, on the other hand, preferred to live in a world of pleasantries and politeness, and and did not care to talk politics at all, no matter the state of things. They still shop at the same supermarket, which is now only half full of highly processed foods. Worse than before the blackout, often consisting of cricket and mealworm protein, as well as chemical ingredients one could not begin to pronounce. He almost couldn't stand to put the food to his lips. There were times he questioned why he even bothered. His folks had years to come around to understand, yet they chose not to. They watched the carnage around them unfold through, televi- through the television set until the signal ceased, and after that decided the news wasn't any good anyways, which was true. They were content to play golf, watch old movies, and read old books, which, in truth, was not the worst way to operate in the world as the world was turned upside down, as they were happier for it. In some ways, this new world appealed to the man's desire for peace and solitude. He never liked being reachable or traceable. He preferred to be hard to find, but took very seriously being a dependable and honest person, even if a bit elusive. If he said he'd be there, he'd be there. Hence, so many maybes. <clears throat> he exits the trailer and locks it behind him, watching. Er, Sally watching with her head out the passenger side window, wondering what he was up to. He jogs back, back inside to the snack counter and hands over the goods. The clerk smiles at the bars, lifts them to his nose, and sniffs deeply. Lavender, chamomile, and tea tree oils hit his nostrils. The good stuff. You ain't messing around, are you, partner? I ain't smelled anything this fine in a coon's age. I could say the same for those burgers your garden. They both laugh as the clerk slides the tray forward offering up his end of the bargain pleasure doing business with you likewise replies the clerk enjoy your stay in hanksville i will see you next time the man realized as the words came out of his mouth he may never see this man or this town again despite the strong connection he has for the area it is not his home it is just a place he lived once for a spell The man walks out of the gas station with his two brown sacks and his milkshake. He looks towards the motel where the American Gladiator was still doing his calisthenics. He hops into the cab of the truck and pulls out and down the road just a few hundred feet before turning into the motel parking lot, eating a few large spoonfuls of the milkshake, giving himself a slight brain freeze. The other nomad doesn't seem to take any notice of the Ford and Airstream pulling into the front lot of the Whispering Sands, but the man has a sense that he has been slyly observed, just as he had been observing. Two alpha dogs in the same parking lot. This can only go one of two ways. He parks the truck, leaving Sally to guard it, and steps into the motel office, milkshake in tow. It is cool and dark with a small window air conditioner humming in the back of the room, making it a bit too chilly compared to the ambient outdoor temperature, and gives the man a queasy feeling, reminding him he still needs to eat something more substantial than milk and sugar. He rings the bell on the counter, and a short woman, around 70 years old, comes out from the storeroom. Welcome to the Whispering Sands Motel. Need a room? Yes, ma'am, he says in <clears throat> to the sweet and salty old lady behind the counter. Don't need anything fancy, but if you've got hot showers and soft beds, that's all I care about. Yes, yeah, sir, we've got you covered there. Looks like you could use one, too. No offense. You're about as dirty looking as that other fellow was when we've got staying here when he showed up yesterday. Not too busy around here. Looks like just the two of you for now. To be honest, though, that's the most business we've had in a while. Most folks just pass through. None too many stay in Hanksville for the night. Well, glad to be a paying customer. What's the damage per night? It depends. We going digital or physical? What's your preference, he asks, slurping on his milkshake. Let's just say I'm an old-fashioned kind of gal, and my propane guy sure likes silver. I'll charge you four silver eagles or 24,000 sats. Your choice. But I always take double and return the extra upon checkout, given that there's no incidentals. Let's do silver. I'm a bit old-fashioned myself. The man unzips a small fanny pack attached to his belt and pulls out a box of coins, still mostly full. He fishes out eight large coins, each one being a troy ounce of silver. Before handing them over, he asks, y'all have laundry? She nods. How much does it cost? Well, we've still got the old coin op machines. If you ain't got any old quarters, I can sell you some. Six quarters per load, but we only take the real silver quarters, so I'll need to see them before you use them. Laundry machines are the next door over from here. The man puts eight large coins on the counter, effectively paying for his room times two, and reaches back into the fanny pack and grabs a roll of quarters wrapped in paper. He smacks it against the corner of the countertop, busting it open, spilling quarters all across the counter. The old woman lifts a pair of reading glasses dangling on a chain around her neck and looks closely at the quarters, flipping some over to check the mint year on the front side. They're all pre-1965. Looks good, she says. If you want to leave the whole roll, I'll do the laundry for you, folded and everything, and I can bring it to your room when it's done. I'm a bit on the short side with extra quarters these days. Well, you drive a hard bargain, but I accept. That would be splendid. I apologize in advance for the smell of my socks. I wouldn't. It won't be pleasant. Hope the roll of quarters is worth it. Funny how ten bucks worth of quarters is worth a hell of a lot more than it used to be. Like the great Merle Haggard once sang, I wish a buck was still silver, it was back when the country was strong, she says. Back before Elvis and before the Vietnam War came along, he responds knowing the lyrics, What a song, are the good times really over? Tell you what, when the laundry is done, maybe we'll sit and listen to some music together. What do you say, hun? do Don't be tempting me with a good time now, young man. You couldn't handle it. Whoa, doggie. You're my kind of woman. Nice and feisty. And likes good country music. What's your name, darling? Suzanne. Suzanne Sweeney. And yours, traveler? You can call me Merle. Nice to meet you, Suzanne. He uses a different alias at each new place along his journey in this new world it was quite common for folks to withhold personal information like names and hometowns many are suspicious of anyone and everyone the complete loss of privacy to government forces and big tech corporations experienced earlier in the decade was still fresh in their minds people had become leery of anyone asking for personal information so the motel lady takes no offense to the obvious chosen pseudonym, despite her giving away her true name. Well, Merle, the pleasure is all mine. I'll put you in room 11 all the way at the end. That gives you and the other fella plenty of elbow room between you. Plus, it's got the best water pressure in the whole joint. She says with a wink before grabbing the key off the hook. She hands it over with a big plastic tag on a ring labeled 11. The man always loved the number 11, not quite sure why. Thank you, Miss Sweeney, or is it Mrs.? Well, my husband, Ron, passed a few years ago, so I suppose either way works, but I prefer Suzanne. Very well, Suzanne. I will drop my laundry bag off by the door and get myself settled. Thank you, and I mean it. Let's listen to some Haggard, Nelson, and Jennings later. I've got, a few, I've got the means to play them. That sounds lovely. Maybe we'll have a full-blown cookout. Three's a party, although that other fellow seemed like the quiet type, but you never know. A couple lonely travelers and an old lady sounds like a recipe for a good time. Perhaps if we play the music loud enough, we can attract some other folks. It's a small town, after all. Mm, maybe, she said, sounding skeptical. Merle, enjoy the shower. I'll wait to get that load of laundry going for an hour or so. There's only so much hot water to go around here. Very good, I'll do that. Might try to get acquainted with our athlete out there, motioning with a with a head tilt towards the window where the other man could still be seen outside, now in a deep forward bend, stretching his lower back, thighs, and calves, hugging his knees with his arms, his face firmly pressed between his knees and his feet flat on the ground. "'Good luck, and I'll see you later,' says Suzanne, waving and smiling at him as he walks towards the door, developing a small, innocent crush on the polite, tall, handsome, younger man. "'See you then.' He walks back to the truck, puts the motel room key in his pocket, and goes to retrieve the two brown paper bags which now show grease-soaked corners. He snatches them off the dash, pats Sally on the head, and says stay. He then turns and walks directly towards the man stretching out on the grass. When he gets there, or when he gets close, but not too close, he decides to announce himself, unsure of the man's awareness, or lack thereof, making sure not to startle him by approaching too quickly or quietly. How you doing, mate? He says from about ten yards off. Thought I ought to say hello. Looks like we're the only two tenants for now. Figured you might want some lunch. He says, holding up the brown paper sacks. At this point, the man was seated doing a butterfly stretch with his feet pressed into each other and knees out wide, bending forward and nearly touching the grass with his forehead. What's on the menu? He asks in a direct polite and measured voice not moving an inch or showing his face cheeseburgers well shit buddy you sure do know how to make friends i'll give you that what kind of american would i be if i turned down a freely offered cheeseburger or at least i assume it's being freely offered of course wouldn't be very neighborly to charge you for it still calling yourself an american huh What else would I be? That's the continent we're standing on last I checked. He lifts from his position, stands up in a single fluid motion, not using his hands to push off the ground, and turns to meet the man eye to eye. Well, I tend to agree. A lot of people associate it with government citizenship, but not me. It's beyond that, I figure. Not a state, but a state of mind, more like it, he says as he sucks up the last of the milkshake, making the telltale gurgling sound at the bottom of the paper cup. You some kind of philosopher or what? The stranger asks with his hand outstretched to shake. The man accepts the offer, slipping the now empty milkshake under his left arm and shaking firmly with his now free hand, clutching the dripping bags with the other. Podcaster, actually. The words came out nearly by accident. His mission, after all, is a sensitive one and should not be spoken about to just any stranger and you? I just travel not one for putting down roots if you know what I mean didn't realize there were still podcasts I believe I do know what you mean I've always had itchy feet myself but correct there aren't any except for mine as far as I know you might want to get those feet checked out The stranger says. I did. The doc said something about psychosomatic, whatever the hell that means. The wordplay had begun. Well, are we going to stand around and chew the fat all day, or should we eat these damn burgers? I prefer to sit as I eat. Picnic table? Says the stranger. Works for me. What should I call you? He asks. Hey, Duke. Call me Merle. Did mama try one and only rebel child Merle begins to sing from a family meek and mild. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading, I denied mama tried. If it ain't the one and only Merle Haggard in the flesh, I thought you died only once so far. They settle into the picnic table on the opposite on opposite sides. Merle opens the bags. One with a burger ready to eat, all right, already soggy from the grease and mayonnaise, with fries loose inside the bag. The other bag holds a patty, buns, and toppings wrapped separately in bits of wax paper, as promised by the clerk. Take your pick, says Heyduke. Or he says to Heyduke. You Page, you pick, he replies. Fair enough, I'll take the grease bomb. He unwraps the burger, and after much anticipation, he takes his first big bite. His eyes roll into the back of his head as he tastes the beef, lettuce, tomato, onion, mayo, and bread merging on his taste buds. He chews slowly, savoring it, letting out an audible moan to which Hayduke responds with an honest and hearty laugh. That good, huh? He asks, stacking the layers of his burger. Orgasmic. Hopefully that didn't just make it weird. Only a bit, but I get it. A good burger is a gift from God. Well, don't don't let him take all the credit. I had to pay for it, and the fellow over there at Stands is the one that made it. Noted. Well, the hookers and blow are on me tonight, says hey Duke, getting the man to laugh through a mouthful. He swallows, trying not to choke, and says... Deal. Although, in this town, I'd watch out. The good Mormon girls ain't much for hooking, and I'm not sure I'd be interested, even if they were. But we could always hitch up and go head for Vegas. (laughs) No, you're right. It's slim pickings around here. Vegas it is. I hear it's pretty rough nowadays, but the women are still easy, if you can pay. Women are still women. Men are still men. Why not cut all the extra bullshit out of the transaction? Seems reasonable to me. You know, something is evil if it bleeds for seven days and doesn't die, says Heyduke. Pretty sure I've heard that one before. How about this one? Smells like fish, it's a tasty dish. Smells like cologne, leave it alone. That sounds about right. I had a night in Baton Rouge once, says Heyduke. Met this beautiful black thing at a Creole bar. Took her back to my hotel and thought I had unwrapped a fresh-caught mackerel. Quite tasty. Sounds like it. How long has it been for you? Too damn long, says HeyDuke. Same. I think I've got a shot with Suzanne over there, though. She looks like she's probably got some moves. She could teach a young man a few things, I bet. I figured you were trying to butter me up, buying my lunch and all. "'Glad to know you've got another target in your crosshairs.' "'You ain't my type, bud, and I sure hope I ain't yours, "'or I might have to sleep with my gun tonight.' "'I bet you'll do that anyways. I always do,' Hayduke says. Uh "'Uh-huh.' "'The two men fall into a comfortable silence at this point in the conversation, "'each finishing their burgers, savoring the flavor, "'licking their fingers clean, and finally devouring the fries.' dipping them into little plastic ramekins of fry sauce, the standard uh, condiment in the former state of Utah, a blend of ketchup, mayonnaise, and a secret ingredient, pickle juice, Worcestershire, and sometimes paprika and cayenne, coming out to an appealing shade of pink when mixed in the proper proportions. They make short work of the fries and the sauce, leaving only a mess of greasy white and brown paper in the wake of their consumption. Heyduke collects the wrappers, asking if he can keep them for fire-starting material. Go ahead, the man replies. I appreciate it, Heyduke says, making a dense ball out of the greasy papers and stuffing them into his cargo cargo pocket of his shorts. He is wearing what appear to be green army surplus pants cut off into shorts and a plain gray tank top, exposing, exposing his massive boulder-like shoulders and arms with a neck thick enough to support an extra head, almost rivaling that of Arnold Schwarzenegger. His bulk tapers down towards his waist, then widens again at his legs. For such a hulk, he is exceptionally flexible and remarkably fast. He keeps in shape with daily training in a variety of different disciplines. Tai Chi, yoga, boxing, running, swimming, when the opportunity arose and combat skills, i.e. shooting hand-to-hand, knife work, etc. This is all obvious simply by looking at him. His arms and legs are nearly covered with tattoos, many with a Marine Corps aesthetic. Were you a jarhead? The man asks. How'd you know? Heyduke says, laughing, knowing that it shows wearing himself on his sleeves, which Merle finds refreshing just a feeling when until shortly before it all went to shit thank god a lot of us smelled which way the wind was blowing and we didn't want any part of what was about to unfold now they're out there killing their own and they don't see any problem with it Americans killing Americans was something I wanted no part of I'm glad I got out ever fight for the rebels you look like you could handle yourself Oh, for a time, I served with the Rocky Mountain Militia, booted the feds out of Fort Carson, and secured the Pueblo Chemical Depot. As it became clear the feds were bailing on the entire region, I decided I'd had enough enough of it. Like I said, I don't want to kill Americans. But they aren't Americans. They're feds. Stormtroopers. Yeah, yeah. Still. I understand, says Merle. I've seen more of it than I care for myself. Glad the worst of it is done. But the fighting continues in New Hampshire, five years running now. They don't want to give up anything east of Appalachia. New Hampshire is the hill the feds are going to die on, I guess. I've got friends out there. Me too, if they're still alive. A lot of the Rocky Mountain militia joined up with them when the fighting stopped out here. Others went to the Pacific Northwest. So are you serious about this podcast? Is it really the only one? Well, as far as I know, broadcasting isn't as easy or as safe as it once was. You know that much. But I know the guy who made it possible again. I've got a special network of people who help make it work. It's a bit difficult to explain, but let's just say we're growing it as we speak, one independent network at a time. That's why I'm traveling, making contact with possible receiver distributors. As he finishes speaking, he realizes he shouldn't be saying any of this to a stranger he's just met with no vetting or vouchers. He was never great at keeping secrets and Hayduk feels trustworthy for some reason. Agents are everywhere though. The man figures in his own head, there's no way this guy is a fed. He sticks out like a sore thumb. He would be in charge of a military unit if he was with the feds, not an undercover asset. They like people who can blend in for that kind of work. This thought gives him some comfort. Based on his experience and knowledge, the guy simply doesn't fit the bill. Hell, old Suzanne is more likely to be a fed than this monster, he thinks. Hayduk seems to be equal parts kind and dangerous with friendly eyes and an easy, confident smile and tree-trunk legs. His head is clean-shaven and he wears a dense black beard. He is tan and tall. Merle finds it difficult to understand why Heyduke doesn't have a woman, as strong men were back in vogue. You ever been married, he asks, not even considering the question before asking it, looking Heyduke right in the eyes. There is a moment of hesitation as their eyes meet. It's getting personal. Yep, Hadouk says quietly, his mood and tone changing. Shit, man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to pry. I was just curious. Seems like you'd make a good husband for someone. I was almost married once, but she wasn't ready for me. Well, brother, I wasn't ready for her. I was married, going into the Marines, divorced on my way out. There was another question the man wanted to ask But feared the answer Kids? Yep Two They'd be Twelve and fourteen now Damn man You ever see them? Not for a long time Will ya? I don't know I was pretty fucked up back then Drinking a lot Wasn't a good father to him I'm better now, though. I just don't know. He trailed off, gazing blankly now, shutting down. Well, man, that's, that's rough. I've got nothing. Did you have to stop drinking entirely, or... I've got a cold one in the camper for you later, if you'd like. I'll enjoy one or two on occasion. It got dark for a bit back there, but I can handle myself now. Sounds good. Suzanne may join us later on. I told her to come listen to some music. She's a Merle Haggard fan as well. Well, Merle, sounds like my kind of shindig. I'll be hanging around. I'm in room number two if you can't find me. Right on. I'll leave you be then. I'm going to settle in and shower up. It's been a long time since I've had one of those. The pressure and temperature are great. And thanks for the cheeseburger. Anytime, hey, Duke. He extends his hand to shake again, palms still a little greasy. It was a pleasure to meet you, too. I think we ought to chat more before we go our separate ways. You've got it. See you in a little bit, he says, shaking the outstretched hand firmly, looking into the man's eyes. Merle walks away smiling. It was always nice to meet someone new, even with an aura, and even within the aura and era of skepticism. He unlocks the camper and walks in, grabbing his big bag of dirty laundry from the closet. He deposits it next to the laundry room door and waves flirtatiously at Suzanne through the window, receiving a girlish and excited wave in return. He then goes to his room, unlocks the door, and opens it. He feels the blast of cold air from the window unit and steps inside. It appears that Suzanne snuck over during his and Heyduke's lunch and turned on the lights and air conditioner. What a sweetheart, he thinks. He then goes back to the truck, lets Sally out, rolls up the window, and locks the doors. He goes back into the camper and grabs a duffel bag and a bar of soap from the sink, locking it up as he leaves. He carries the bag into the room and sets it on the bed. He turns and peeks out the window to see Sally peeing next to a bush and whistles for her. She runs into the room and jumps onto the bed at the man's request. He pats her head and says, good girl, Sal. He shuts the door and locks it, thinking of all these locked doors as almost being an insult to the two near friends he's just made. And and to the quiet town of Hanksville. But decides it's better to be safe than sorry when such vulnerable position as being naked in the shower. He pulls the pistol and holster from his belt and sets them on the small desk in the hotel room. He then strips off his boots, socks, and clothes, deciding it would be best to have these last dirty clothes laundered as well. He wraps himself in a towel from the bathroom, modesty not being completely dead. He takes the soiled pants, shirts, shirt, briefs, and stinking socks out through the door, telling Sally to stay. He then scans the area, slightly embarrassed at being exposed to the outdoors in only a towel. He walks briskly from the far end of the motel to the laundry room door where his bag still sits. He deposits the dirty clothes in the green fabric sack and quickly returns to his room, staying out of view from the motel office for fear of getting Suzanne too excited at the view of his nearly naked body. He closes and locks the door once more, finally head, heading into the bathroom. As expected, there is no complimentary soap, a hospitality no longer afforded by default. He grabs his half-used bar and turns on the water, feeling it warm up quickly. Despite the hot temperatures in the desert, he decides to get the water nearly scalding before stepping, <clears throat> stepping into the stream. It hits his skin, stinging a bit at first, from both the pressure and the heat, but his tense muscles relax under the bombardment of a 100 plus degree H2O. He plunges his face into the stream, turns around and lets it run through his long blonde hair. He wipes the water from his eyes and looks down at the brownish water, running off his legs and going down the drain. He grabs the bar of soap and works up a nice lather in his hands. He starts with his hair, Applying the soap and working it into his wavy, waving locks. He then scrubs his face with both hands, working the soap around his ears, down to his neck, and onto his shoulder. He rinses the suds from the top of his body and wa- wipes the water from his eyes, once again checking the color of the water running down the drain, seeing it is still brown. He picks up the soap and works up another lather, which he uses to wash his armpits, torso, and back. A little more soap on the hands, and he scrubs vigorously his genitals and ass. Best rinse and repeat for that area, he thinks. After double-washing his junk, he finally hits his legs directly with, soap, with the bar of soap, the dirtiest part of his body by far, with filth from at least three former states clinging to his translucent blonde leg hair and pale skin off Oh, he scrubs them seeing a very dark shade of soapy brown water run off of them for a moment before turning clear he scrubs each foot getting between the toes removing the sock lint and general funk from each crevice he stands up straight letting or setting the soap on a dish enjoying for a moment the pleasure of hot pressurized water on his now clean body He feels as though it would be wasteful to stand in the water much longer, but he cannot help himself. The warmth and wetness is mesmerizing, much like his favorite place in the world. He thinks of her and the shower they shared for a split second, and immediately turns the shower handle all the way to cold, still standing in the stream. After a moment's delay, the scalding water turns freezing, and the man goes from comfort to suffering intentionally. He stands in the cold stream for a full minute or so, feeling his skin temperature come down. He breathes in short, shallow spurts, having an involuntary reaction to the sudden change of environment. He feels his nerves tingling all over his body, puts his head under the faucet, and feels the stinging cold all over his scalp and face. Breathing more regularly now, he shuts off the water and opens his eyes. Wow, he says aloud. Fucking hell. The shower experience was intense and wonderful, well worth the wait. Might have to take another one before leaving, he thinks to himself. He returns to the bathroom, drying himself with a towel. Sally, also naked, is sitting dutifully on the bed. She looks up at him and smiles, panting slightly. He smiles back, drops the towel, and removes the duffel bag from the bed. Lying down with with Sally, still slightly wet. The drops drops on his skin feel cool thanks to the air conditioning unit. Coolness was an uncommon sensation during late summer in the desert. The man allows his eyes to close, drifting deep into a cheeseburger-induced coma. Chapter 4, The Proposal. He's standing on the balcony, smoking a delicious spliff, wondering what he has ever done to deserve such a view. Not the view of Lake Erie behind him, masked in darkness, but the view of his love, his lover, dancing alone. Though she doesn't mean to dance, she dances nonetheless. She moves throughout the kitchen, doing this and that, making something for everyone to eat. It is the most beautiful sight he has ever seen. It strikes him that he should marry her. He can't help himself but think the thought. He almost walks in but pauses, thinking for a moment, smoking and wondering if she might agree. It is a moment, but is it the moment? He sees many shapes and many forms, some lights and some things. He hears music coming from inside and sees the vibrations of it, the resonance of everything all at once. The glass shimmers. Tones and sights meld together. It is all unbelievably and almost unbearably beautiful. It is like a dream, but he's pretty sure it isn't. He walks or he watches her through the glass in disbelief. He finally decides to go to do it. He puts out his spliff and marches in with purpose he walks up to her and she looks up at him with a surprised expression he touches her waist pulls her closer and says i dare you to do what she asks to marry me he proposes